Welcome to the St. John's Hoxton podcast. We are a local church in East London, here to be a beacon of hope for Hoxton. And our mission is to worship God, make disciples, share Jesus, and transform Hoxton. Okay, so the reading today is taken from Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. And it's the story of Jesus restoring a demon-possessed man. They sailed to the region of Gerasin, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had worn clothes, had not worn clothes, or lived in a house, but had lived in tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, the demons begged Jesus to let, to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasene asked Jesus to leave them, because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away, and told all over the town how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. If you've got questions about the pigs, ask me afterwards, but that's not where I want to go this morning. So this morning we're continuing in our Margin to Middle series, and this is the third installment. And the Margin to Middle series is exploring how Jesus brought those on the margins, the edge of society, uh, those that society had branded as misfits or stigmatized and pushed out onto the fringes, Jesus brings them right into the center of the gospel story. And in our first installment, Graham set the scene explaining some of the culture around honor and shame in the first century Palestine uh, some 2,000 years ago. And he drew some parallels, but also differences between the culture the Bible was written in and our culture in 21st century Britain. Graham also powerfully shared something of why this series is important to him personally, speaking of his own experience of feeling on the margins. 
And then last week, in our second installment, Graham introduced us to Zacchaeus, who, despite his wealth, experienced hatred from his own community due to his job as a tax collector and the way that he'd exploited others to achieve his wealth, colluding with the occupying oppressive forces, the Romans. Today, we meet a man who has become known infamously as the Gerasene demoniac. In his story that Ali read to us, uh, Luke's version, it's also recorded in Matthew and Mark, which I'll draw upon as we go through. And in his story, we hear about a man who is so far gone in his society's eyes that he lives even beyond the margins of society. Yet when he encounters Jesus, he is brought right into the middle of the gospel story. And this passage throws up quite a lot of difficult questions. But perhaps most pressing in today's climate is, was this a demon the man was experiencing, or mental illness, or both? Before we go any further, let's pray. May I speak in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. There's been a lot of debate about whether the symptoms described that this man was experiencing correspond to a diagnosable mental illness. And to get a full picture of this encounter, we need Mark and Matthew's accounts too. We read in our passage from Luke that this man was exiled from his community by his condition. And we might infer from the text that it was sanctioned by his community to use restraints uh, to keep him from harming passers-by, those who might happen to visit the resting place of dead relatives at the graveyard where this man was living. He was removed from society, not even really on the margins. He was naked and homeless. Matthew records, however, that he wasn't alone. He was with another similarly distressed man, both of whom were violent towards others. Mark records three further disturbing symptoms the man displayed. Insomnia, vocal distress, and self-harm. If we have some basic awareness of mental health, we might be able to note that certainly some of these symptoms feature in various mental health illnesses. However, is it right to seek to diagnose this man based on the biblical accounts to neatly fit into a modern diagnostic tool? I found Christopher Cook's reflection helpful in this book, which he um, contributes to and edits, uh, called The Bible and Mental Health. And I'd recommend it to you if you want to delve a bit deeper. And he writes... In fact, it is not necessary to diagnose the Gerasene demoniac at all. Diagnostic criteria are contested. Taximonies are subject to constant revision and change. The conferral of a diagnosis may be associated with stigma, prejudice, 
and harm of various kinds. Diagnoses are useful in medical practice because they provide guidance to correct treatment and likely prognosis. However, people are not defined by diagnosis, nor are they defined by their demons. In an age where treatments for major mental disorders were completely lacking, Jesus shows compassion to a tormented man excluded from his community. Whatever the diagnosis may have been, Jesus redefines the prognosis. When I recently attended a two-day training course to be a mental health first aider, they emphasized that it was not our role in encountering someone exhibiting poor mental health to diagnose them. Our role was simply to be there by supporting them with non-judgmental listening and signposting them to further appropriate help where a diagnosis might be reached via a trained medical professional if required. If you're like me with a fix-it mentality, it can be quite challenging to not try and diagnose and then come up with a solution. As Christians, we are disciples, followers of Jesus Christ, and so we look to our great physician, Jesus, for direction as the one who ultimately heals and restores. Another point uh, that's important to consider in reading this encounter between Jesus and this man is the damage it can cause to draw a neat correlation between mental illness and demon possession. Talking about demons and indeed demon possession can give some the heebie-jeebies. We can run the risk of not wanting to over-spiritualize things that we don't want, uh, that we, we, we don't want to talk about the dark forces at work in this world at all, or we can go in the opposite direction and put everything that happens or doesn't go our way down to demonic actions or forces in the world. And we will all know where we are prone to sit on that seesaw. But one thing this encounter makes clear is that this man was possessed by demons. Whether the demons were directly or indirectly behind the man's symptoms is not made explicit in the text. We do, however, know that the demons drove the man away from his community into solitary places. To approach this story and say that the man's poor mental health was a result of demon possession and then use that as a neat template for encountering mental illness in others and in ourselves is dangerous. Why? Because throughout the Gospels, we encounter other people who are recorded as having demon possession, yet who are experiencing physical ill health. For example, in Matthew 12:22, a demon-possessed man is recorded as being blind and mute. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 14, a little boy is recorded as experiencing seizures due to demon possession. 
And in Luke 13, verse 11, we read of a woman who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. Using the same faulty copy and paste theology, we could falsely diagnose anyone who was blind or mute, experiencing seizures, or with any kind of spinal issues as being demon-possessed. If we say, well, of course, it would be absurd to make the assumption that everyone with poor physical health experiencing a bad back was demon-possessed, why is it that we might be more prone to draw the dots between demon possession and mental health? An article on the Christian Mind and Soul Foundation expresses that the Bible tells us very little about specific illnesses. We don't usually read about diagnosis, only symptoms. Things like paralysis or blindness. And in fact, the only accepted medical diagnosis presented by the Bible is leprosy, which is mentioned 40 times. And actually, that's going to be one of our sermon uh, topics coming up in this series. Whilst people have tended not to suggest medical diagnosis behind the Bible's negative physical symptoms, they sometimes suggest or assume diagnosis behind emotional symptoms. Could it be that we fear what we do not know? Without education, it is hard to understand why someone would experience psychotic episodes, hear voices, claim to be God, or behave in socially unaccepted, unacceptable, violent, or distressing ways, harming themselves or others. The Sanctuary course aims to educate Christians in mental health awareness, and I recently co-completed the course with Irene, and I cannot recommend it highly enough to you, and Irene is nodding along in agreement with me there. Um, if you'd like more information about it, please do speak to myself after the service. One of the sessions in the Sanctuary course explains uh, is on stigma, and it helpfully explains that stigma is a process which is brought about first by stereotypes, which then drive prejudice, which then results in acts of discrimination. Some of this touches, again, on shame and honor, which although not a prevalent, visible operating system in 21st century Britain, it could be argued is still an imperceptible undercurrent in regards to certain areas of life, mental health being one of them. The British stiff upper lip mentality that says emotions are to be kept tightly under control and rarely exhibited, to keep calm and carry on, seriously comes into conflict with anyone experiencing poor mental health who can't simply keep calm and carry on. I want to share a little of my own story and why I'm passionate about mental health and well-being. I've experienced mental ill health during my life, which I can clearly, clearly correspond to particular causational events. I had an eating disorder when I was a teenager, 
and I experienced PTSD as a young adult. I experienced support via therapeutic channels, which led me to recovery. And I've been quite open about those experiences in my life. I think because I recovered from them, I was happy to speak about them as a success story. However, what I have been much less vocal about is my battle with anxiety, which at times led me into depression. Again, there are causational factors behind this mental ill health, which have helped me frame it. And for most of my life, I functioned with a low-level permanent state of anxiety, which I did my level best to make sure nobody knew about or saw. Why? Because I was afraid of rejection, being seen as weak or worse, crazy. But again, due to another causational event back in 2009, I was unable to keep my anxiety under wraps. And so I ended up going on medication. The one thing I'd always avoided because I'd stigmatized it. I'd wrongly viewed it as a cop-out for not facing up to your problems. I was so fearful of telling my family and friends because I needed their help and support to carry me through. Thankfully, I was not met by a stigmatized response from my now husband and family and friends, but with love, compassion, and support. And this was a major help in my journey on the road to recovery. Why do I share this? Because our responses to those experiencing mental ill health is crucial in their recovery, which may be full, partial, or like other physical chronic illnesses, ongoing and something to be lived with. The fundamental takeaway response from this sermon that I would love for you to have is Jesus's approach to this man. In verse 30 of our passage, Jesus says, what is your name? He doesn't say, tell me about your symptoms or how long have you been suffering with demon possession? He doesn't judge him or avoid him. He sees beyond the distressing blood oozing from the man's open wounds over his naked body where he repeatedly cuts himself day and night. He sees and smells beyond the unkept, smelly appearance, the glazed, sleep-deprived look in the man's eyes, and isn't intimidated by the broken chains hanging from the man's hands and feet. Most shockingly, as a Jew, he isn't afraid of making himself ritually unclean by associating with this disturbed Gentile living in an unclean place amongst the dead. He doesn't worry that by coming near, he might catch this man's ailment. What is your name, Jesus asks. Not what is your clinical diagnosis, not what is your condition, your illness, not what is wrong with you. What is your name, Jesus asks. 
At first, the man is not able to answer for himself. Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. Perhaps the man had been so used to being avoided, labeled as demon-possessed and out of his mind, that he himself couldn't see beyond the labels that had been placed upon him. But Jesus saw him as a person, as a known, loved son of God, someone worth speaking to, someone worth spending time with, someone worth healing, someone worth saving. With Jesus, he is known by name, not by his label. With that in mind, hereafter, I will call him Frank. As I come to a close, there is an interesting observation to be made when reading this encounter between Jesus and Frank in context. In all three Gospels, this story comes after Jesus has just calmed the storm on the very lake he has now traveled across to reach this gentle, Gentile country of Gerasene with the sole purpose of liberating this Gentile demon-possessed man. At the end of the passage in verse 37 to 39, Frank wants to get back into the boat with Jesus and go with him across the calmed lake. But Jesus commissions Frank to be an evangelist to the very community who had ostracized him. This is not an easy commission at all. And again, I'd caution about taking any one-size-fits-all templates from this story. It is understandable that Frank would want to go with Jesus, to remain close to the one who is able to not only calm the physical storms in the natural world, but also the spiritual, emotional, and mental storms we face. To step out into the boat with Jesus onto the calmed lake, away from those who had restrained and marginalized him, would have been the far more appealing and perhaps more sensible option to our minds. But Jesus commissions Frank, this unlikely man, to be an evangelist to his Gentile community, to tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. Tell them how much God has done for you, Jesus says to him. As Tom Wright notes, this is Jesus directly claiming to be God. Frank becomes central to God's mission of bringing the good news of salvation to all people, even the ones who are afraid of what this good, good news might do to their status quo. Like the Samaritan woman we will hear about later in our series, he is sent back to a community who had rejected him. Perhaps the modern framing of well-being might shed some light on this commission. In the internationally recognized five ways to well-being, 
it is proven that good mental health is supported by these five principles, which we can see displayed in Frank's commission, uh, Jesus's commission to Frank. Frank is told to reconnect with his community. As human beings, we all need meaningful connection with others. Frank is also told to get active. As Mark records it in Mark 5 verse 19, go, go home to your own people and tell how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And Frank is encouraged by Jesus to take notice and to learn by reflecting on all that Jesus has done for him. And then finally, to give the good news away to his community, who we are told in Mark 5, verse 20, received it positively in wonder and amazement. So what can we take away from this encounter between Jesus and Frank? Perhaps looking at three varying options afforded us in the text, we have a choice on how we will choose to respond. Do we choose the response of Jesus's disciples who hung back in neutral silence, refusing to engage? Do we choose to be like the people of Gerasen who initially, bound by fear, didn't want any further disruption to the status quo. They understood Frank as the crazy man and was disturbed by his recovery so much that they asked Jesus to leave. Or do we choose to be like Jesus, who approached Frank as a person, not as a diagnosable condition? who saw Frank as a person who had a story to share that could lead others to discover the good news for themselves. Jesus goes beyond the margins to the unclean land of death and torment, beyond the very margins of society to bring Frank right into the middle of the gospel story and commissions him to be the very first male evangelist to the Gentiles. As we continue in our series over the next weeks, may God transform us all to be those who seek to reach out and bring all on the margins of society into the middle of the gospel story. Amen. Thanks for listening to the St. John's Hoxton podcast. New talks will be uploaded every week from all of our services. And do check out our website, stjohnshoxton.org.uk, for more information.